The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, good morning. And those who are in earshot, you can find your way to your seat while I got quiet quickly. Go ahead and open your Bible to Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones uh, on the seats near you. Uh, that's our gift to you. You can keep that. Galatians chapter 6. And we are actually finishing our study in Galatians this morning. We have been, uh, these last 18 weeks, going verse by verse through the letter to the Galatian churches. And I trust that it's been fruitful for you and edifying as it has been for me even in my own study. Before we begin, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, we ask now for your your help, your blessing on our time of study, uh, of self-examination, of of searching the scriptures to discern your will, to the hearing and the receiving of your word, and to the instruction of your word in truth and righteousness. We pray, God that our, our minds and our, our hearts would be open to hear and receive the correction or the rebuke, the, the challenge, the leading, the guiding of your Spirit through your Word. And we ask, God, that our hearts and our minds would also be attentive, that you would help us to set aside, even for this moment, our, our anxieties and our struggles and our distractions, and give us a supernatural attention to your Word, so that we would hear it, and by hearing, believe, and in believing, be saved. So we ask God for all of this, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we end the study of Galatians here in Galatians 6, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, indeed, to the end of the book. I want to read... Together there in verse 11, Paul writes, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel, God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. What I want to do before we dig in to the text here in front of us is just remind us of the letter in whole thus far. I'm going to offer a summary 
of the book of Galatians in just a few short paragraphs. This is my own summary, and I trust that those who have been here and along the journey with us will recognize where in the book of Galatians I've summarized these points. Paul writes to the Galatians, Dear Galatians, The gospel which I first preached to you is under attack, and it must be fought for. It must be preserved at all costs. And so if anyone, and I mean anyone, tries to preach a different gospel to you, he will face God's wrath and judgment. That's how serious this is. What makes my gospel the correct gospel? It's because I was called personally and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to proclaim it to you. Even the other apostles, whose opinion and affirmation, by the way, I did not seek out, agree with me. But there are certain enemies of the gospel in your midst, false teachers, who seek to trouble and to disturb and even to destroy your faith by distorting the gospel. They are teaching that obedience to the law of Moses is essential for being righteous with God and for remaining right with Him. This is a lie from hell. And yet you are close to believing, like you've been in some sort of trance. Brothers and sisters, snap out of it. Remember, justification is not by works of any kind, but especially the law. The law was given by God not to save us, but to effectively condemn us. It was to show us our need for grace and to lead us to Christ. That is why, to be a Christian, you must die to the law. Justification is not by works of the law or of the flesh, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Old Testament itself teaches us this, if you have eyes to see it. Christ sets us free from both the law and the guilt and condemnation that results from being under the law. Instead, we are free to live as God intended us, using our gift of freedom to love God with our whole selves and to love one another selflessly. We must care for one another, protect and keep watch over one another, and commit ourselves to the good of one another at all times. In fact, there is a law that every believer must obey. It is the law of Christ, who is our example in everything. Live like Him, and you will grow in spiritual maturity and godliness. Without the true gospel, you could never do this and are still in bondage. So don't give it up so easily. This is Paul's admonition to the churches in Galatia who were being deceived and duped by false teachers, heretics, who were adding works to the gospel of free grace. This is quite early in Paul's ministry, one of the earliest letters of Paul, if not the earliest we have. And he's laying down the the truth of the gospel that would characterize the entire ministry to all of the churches he would serve that the gospel is a work of free grace. You cannot earn your justification or righteousness, but it is given to you solely on the basis of your faith and faith alone in Christ. 
And so he's warning, rebuking, and calling to the Galatian churches to respond to the true gospel and to stop following these teachers to a path of destruction, lest they find themselves under real and dangerous condemnation of God. This judgment that all of us will at one time face, to whom we must, before God, give an account, not only of how we have received the gospel and have responded to it, but how we have lived in light of it, whether we have burdened ourselves and others with works that they must they must take on upon themselves in order to remain right with God, or whether we live and walk by the Spirit in our freedom, which Christ secures for us. Paul was many things, an apostle. He was at one point a Pharisee, a philosopher, a logician. But here, much more than just a theologian, Paul is a pastor. And he's warning these churches to not abandon the gospel that saved them or to turn to a false gospel that tells them they can be saved and are kept only if they obey outward rules. Jesus has come to abolish all such rules and regulations. The Sabbaths and the commandments have been put to death and abolished in the flesh of Christ. He says here in the text that we read this morning, we are a new creation. It is not circumcision or uncircumcision which counts for anything. They're a catch-all for the works of the law or flesh that we try to procure our own righteousness. But it is Christ, our faith, and His work for us alone which may credit us righteousness. Now for those who are theologically minded or those who are astute among us, you may notice in the book of Galatians, all five of what we would call the five solas of the Reformation are present. We'll just briefly review them with you. We saw in the beginning of Galatians the principle of sola scriptura, that there is one gospel preserved by God's people for all time. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul tells the pastors of churches to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to them and deliver it faithfully to other men who would continue to do that. And the church as a whole is to defend and support the truth from attack. In the first couple chapters of Galatians, we see that Paul is showing that his authority to teach comes from Christ. The gospel is the gospel that Christ himself has come to give. And so there is a principle of revelation preserved here in the book of Galatians that tells us if we are to receive God's truth, it is only from the word of those called to preach it. That is the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But also clearly we see that the, the principles of Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Very clearly, this is really the meat and potatoes of the book of Galatians. That if you're to be justified, it's by faith alone. And it's a work of God's grace alone, not by our own merit. And it is to Christ alone. And in Christ alone, we trust. Not in ourselves, our flesh, our work, our teachers. In Christ alone. In our text, we see the final of the five solas. To the glory of God alone. Here we see that we are to boast not in our flesh as the false teachers would, 
boast in their numbers, boast in their proselytizing, boast in their circumcision, boast in their obedience. But we are to boast in Christ to the glory of God alone. We do not glory in ourselves. We do not look to our works. We do not build the satisfaction and the justification of our righteous hope on our works, but on Christ's work. And we boast in that. So what it means to glory, it means to boast, to give praise, to exult. And we are to do so to the glory of God alone, not ourselves. So this is Paul's sort of personal and final warning and exhortation to the Galatian churches here to take what he has said so far seriously. In a lot of ways, it's just a reiteration of those principles contained in the other five chapters. But here I want to focus in on really Paul's final point. Considering the glory of God alone, there are two ways we may do this. There are two kinds of glory. There is a glory in the flesh, and there is a glory in the cross. Galatians so far has been a book of contrast between the law and faith, between the spirit and the flesh. Here we see it is the glory in our work or in the flesh, and our glory or our boasting in the cross. The dangerous flaw of this works-based righteousness, this this works-based gospel that the false teachers are peddling in Galatians is evident to all those, but especially Paul. He says here that it will lead to a boasting in the flesh. You will know the tree by its fruit. These false teachers boast only in themselves and in the flesh. That's the dangerous flaw in the inevitable outcome of such a works-based gospel. It leads to a boasting in the flesh. But the true gospel, Paul maintains, is to transform our heart, to give us a better source of boasting, namely the cross of Christ. So as he pens his his final exhortations, his goal here is to remind the reader that they are to boast in the cross of Christ. He drives the final nail of the coffin of this false gospel that says your works count for anything before God. He certainly does not. And he writes this final exhortation with his own hands. We see in verse 11, Notice with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, it's common practice, even in Paul's day, that he would not write the letter himself, perhaps because of a physical disability or simply having many other young scribes along with him. Luke was one of his favorites. He usually would dictate word by word, not granting editorial prerogative to these individuals, but dictating word by word what these would write down. And then at the end, he would come and he would pen a short benediction, usually with his own hand, something similar to us typing up a letter, printing it, and signing it ourselves with our own signature. It's a personal touch, a pastoral touch. But here there's something unique in this sign-off. In verse 11, he says, I am writing this with my own hand with large letters. The equivalent today of writing in all caps. The point, of course, is that there would be a boldness 
that would answer the force of the apostle's conviction. He wants to be very clear that he's serious about everything he said so far, and he doesn't want to have anyone walk away with a mistaken impression that this is optional, take it or leave it. Paul is as deeply invested in the truths of the book of Galatians as he is in any other truth we read in any of his letters. It's to give force to his convictions here. The size of the letters and the characters are meant to arrest the attention of his readers. So in addition to authenticating the letter and attesting that he had meant what he said, here Paul is to underscore, he's re-emphasizing both the central message of the letter and his personal investment in it. This is the nearest thing to the heart of Paul that there can be. So if Paul takes it seriously and writes in large letters that this is important to him, brothers and sisters, let us take this seriously. To do this, I want to see what Paul's main contention has been as he summarizes and ends his letter. To do this, there are four falsehoods that he exposes that were possessed by these opponents. And he does this in demonstrating how the glory or the boasting in the flesh ultimately leads to ruin and destruction. So four falsehoods possessed by these opponents of the gospel, these these anti-gospel, anti-faith alone gospel teachers that gloried in their flesh, which leads to their destruction. Four falsehoods. The first is that these individuals had a false message. It is a false message. And this has been the contention of the book all along. That they have preached a false gospel, contrary to what Paul has taught them many years ago and is now reminding them again over and over again. In chapter 1, he warned them that if anyone were to come in with a different gospel, they stand under the condemnation of God. They will be accursed and anathema, meaning God's wrath and judgment will be poured out on them on the last day for what they have done to God's people in distorting the gospel of God. They have a false message. But secondly, they have a false motivation. He says that it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised in order that they would not be persecuted of the cross of Christ. He says that they desire to have you circumcised later in verse 13, that they may boast in your flesh. So it's hard to tell what came first, the false message or the false motivation. I'm not sure it's directly important to determine. Because one who begins with a false motivation to boast in the flesh will editorialize the gospel, distort it or change it, and preach it so that they can receive and fulfill those motivations. Or perhaps those who believe a false message, a distorted gospel, will then in turn form false motivations in teaching the gospel. Those who earn righteousness by works of the law will inevitably have a motivation to perform works of the law, to boast in the flesh, and so coerce others. So there's a false message in coercing and demanding that others circumcise themselves and give themselves over to obedience of the law despite the clear teaching of Paul's gospel and a false motivation which is the boasting in the flesh. In essence, they want to show how powerful they are before the Lord in their efforts to bring people into Judaism. However well-intentioned they may have begun, 
They are now on the opposite side of God's will and revelation. They are boasting in their flesh. And notice what happens. The the glorying in the flesh leads to a form of coercion and pressure on others. When your motivation is to glory in your own work and in the flesh, you inevitably put pressure and coerce yourselves into a wrong and frightful, dangerous regimen and command others to conform to it as well. They are forcing you to be circumcised but only in order they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They don't even keep the law, and yet they desire that you would keep the law, you would be circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. You can see that the coercion comes as a result of the false motivation, which says they must glory, boast, count up works, and take pride in what they've accomplished in their own flesh, and how they've led others to take pride in their own flesh. And so they treat others as those who must be under the law. There is a false message which gives rise to a false motivation which leads them to coerce others. But not only coercion, but this glory in the flesh leads to a lack of even true concern for the souls. We see a picture here of the hypocrisy of these false teachers. They who desire to keep the law are not even keeping it themselves. And yet they command others to keep the law that they may boast in their flesh. What they care about is not ultimately the soul of the person who desires to keep the law, but the flesh or the outward obedience of those who are keeping the law. False teachers who preach a false gospel motivated by a false motivation care so little about your soul that they would coerce you with rules and commands and regulations with law that you would fit their pattern of Christian, while damning you and condemning you to hell. Paul says, we need to see these people for who they are. They have a false message. They have a false motivation. They also possess a false obedience. He says again also that they desire, verse 12, to make a good showing in the flesh. That is, their obedience is outward only, almost never inwardly. They're not so much concerned with the soul or the heart or the spirit of the law. They want to keep the letter so that they can keep the rule, so they would not be found in transgression of a particular command, so that they can say that they fulfilled it, obeyed it, and therefore earn righteousness. This is a false obedience. Friends, you and I are commanded to obey Scripture. There is no getting around that. The New Testament is replete with commands on the Christian to obey But our obedience, if it is to be true, is not one that we do outwardly only, but obedience must be inwardly. It must lead from a heart of submission, of loyalty, of love for God. And our submission to God does not lead to our acceptance by God, for it is our faith in Christ which secures that. No, our obedience if it is to be true, must be inwardly. That's why Paul accuses these individuals of hypocrisy, trying to keep the law or circumcision, but failing ultimately to do it themselves. They don't understand it, they don't keep it, and yet they command others to do the same. This is hypocrisy. To top this off, they have a false loyalty. 
He says they do all of this, verse 12 again, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want to avoid persecution for Christ's sake. Now, it's completely fair and natural to want to avoid persecution. You should not jump headlong into persecution. And yet, if God places you in a context or in a circumstance where it is faithful and commanded even for you to speak for Christ, and persecution is the inevitable result, we must not shrink back from such things. And yet they avoid persecution, like the plague, to the point where they would distort the gospel. That they would distort the gospel, that they would lead others astray, that they would condemn both themselves and others who would follow them. They desire to have a good showing of the flesh, to gain the approval, the acceptance of others. Maybe family or friends or people of influence. Their loyalty isn't to God. It's not to the gospel or to Christ. Their loyalty ultimately is not even to those they aim to please, but to themselves. At any cost, avoid persecution for the name of Christ. What Paul has done is simply expose these false teachers, these heretics for what they are. Opponents of the gospel with a false message, with a false motivation, with an outward and false obedience, with a false loyalty. The result of all this, of course, is a sort of anemic, weak Christianity. Those who believe the gospel of these opponents don't have a Christianity which is able to save, since you were constantly failing in your own efforts to earn your righteousness. The reformer Martin Luther knew this. He became a monk and tried as hard as anyone could ever try to be righteous by God's word's standards, and yet came to the conclusion over and over and over again that he could never have assurance because he knew in his heart of hearts he was always sinning. In some way, he was transgressing the law. In some way, he was falling short of God's standard. In some way, he was doing this or doing that. And he came to the conclusion that the law only condemns. And if we are to have real righteousness, it must come from someone else and not from ourselves. That's the kind of Christianity on which we must base our hope and trust. That's the kind of Christianity which holds Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, not ourselves. So if those with a false message and a false motivation, who have a false obedience and a false loyalty to themselves instead of God, who give and procure a false and anemic Christianity, is to be exposed as the hypocrites and the heretics that they are. And we are exhorted to avoid and to repudiate such individuals. What is our next step? Friends, it's simply this, to examine the genuineness of your faith. To consider where you might, in some small fashion, have given ground to the falsehood of these false believers. Where you may be tempted to believe the false gospel of works righteousness. Where you be motivated in your own walk of faith to boast in your flesh because of your righteousness, your deeds, your Bible reading, your answering of the question the right way, your preaching, your evangelism. Whatever your good deeds may be, you may be tempted to boast in your flesh. Maybe you're hypocritical saying one thing but knowing you do the other. Maybe at the end of the day you know that you've avoided hardship, difficulty, maybe even suffering and persecution for the name of Christ because your loyalty in that moment was to yourself. 
There are moments in our lives where this will be true of each one of us. And so we must examine the genuineness of our faith and ask God to help strengthen it so that at any moment when it is called upon us to speak for the Lord, to teach, to preach, to evangelize, to proclaim boldly, we do not shrink back. You may ascribe to an orthodox confession of faith, but what do your actions truly betray about you? What does Paul tell us? In verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Your works do not count for anything. Your works in the large scheme of things do not matter. When God comes to judge without Christ, your works will not save you. But with Christ, your works cannot condemn you. This is what Paul means. He's not meaning to not obey the commands of Scripture or that you can live however you'd like. If you're a Christian, you'll, fi- you'll be fine. But rather that those who boast in the flesh will boast in something that cannot keep them afloat. So examine the genuineness of your faith. Examine the boasting of your faith. Know that without Christ, your works are nothing. And if you boast in your flesh and in your works and what you've accomplished, you boast in what cannot save. So what does Paul do? He puts himself forward as an example. He says, verse 14, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another translation, it says, God forbid, the strong, emphatic declaration, that I would boast anything save in the cross of Christ. So Paul almost serves as a foil to this this false gospel, as this false teacher of a false gospel. He gives himself as an example that the Galatians are to follow in. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul says, far from having a false message, he must preach and always will proclaim the true gospel. The gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who has taken on flesh and became man, dwelled among us. That in the incarnation, he entered into human history and he became one of us. He took on the frailty of the human condition. And though he did not sin, perfectly obeying God in all things throughout his life, he was condemned as a criminal. He was nailed to the cross. And on the cross, all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ against your sin and my sin and the sins of all those for whom Christ would ultimately die. Sufficient for all the world to be redeemed and saved, Christ suffers the wrath of God against sin. And there's the miracle of salvation. That Christ's substitution for you on the cross means that simply by placing your faith in the sufficiency of that work, you are saved from condemnation. That every drop of God's wrath against your sin, Christ absorbed. And that he was killed so that you would receive mercy. And Christ was put in a tomb and yet was risen again by the power of God on the third day, showing that he has had victory over the grave, showing that his work on the cross was accepted by God and there is no more wrath for all those who would be 
found in Christ Jesus. Your sins will be forgiven if you place your faith in Christ. This is the message of the true gospel. Your repentance of sin, your turning to Christ in faith, your believing of Christ's work, perfect obedience in his life, and perfect substitution and death, and his resurrection from the dead is sufficient for you to earn righteousness, not from your work, but by his. This is what Paul teaches. This is the true gospel. And this is the one which changes us into a new creation. When he says that it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised because you are now crucified with Christ, you are a new creation, this is what all matters before the Lord. When you come to stand before God on Judgment Day, He will render you righteous because you have been created new in Christ or condemned because you are under wrath. The gospel, when truly believed, sin when really repented of, and faith when really grabbed hold of, Christ when genuinely and affectionately loved, changes us. We become new creations. This leads then to a new motivation. Not a boasting in the flesh, not an ability to save ourselves by earning our righteousness in small ways, even with the orthodox confession of faith in one hand and works righteousness in the other. We have new motivations. We boast not in the flesh, but we boast in Christ. We'll put it another way. The only flesh we may boast in is the flesh of Christ broken for us on the cross. The only body we we boast in and glory in is the body of Christ broken for us at the cross. Our motivations to obey come not from a desire to earn our salvation or to keep ourselves in right standing with God. It comes because God is now worthy to be praised. He is worthy of our obedience. So we have a new motivation and a new kind of obedience, a true obedience that throws away the false obedience which is outward only, but comes from inward, from a changed, radically new heart. This is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that those who receive the blessing of the new covenant receive a new heart with a law written on it with which they obey radically without the condemnation of the law but in the freedom Christ provides. So you are a new creature and we are a new creation. The Lord has begun a new work. He is beginning a new people with a new heart, new motivations, and a new and true obedience. At the end of all this, as a result of our new creation, we now possess a new loyalty. We possess a loyalty to God, to Christ, His Son, to His Word, to the Gospel, over the Word, the world itself, even over our own bodies. Our loyalties no longer reside with ourselves or others or the world, but to God. And this is demonstrated even in the persecution and suffering that Paul takes on himself, that Galatians will take on themselves, that we will take on ourselves. This is what he means when he says that, that he has been crucified to the world and the world to him. There, there, is, a, there is an antithesis at work here. That to be a Christian under the cross means to be not of the world. That each have condemned the other. This is demonstrated by our being willing to endure shame 
suffering, persecution, mockery, distress, trouble, vexation, whatever it may be, as we serve Christ, because the world already condemns us. And yet we condemn the world. Friends, are you, are you a new creation? As you practice the work of self-examination, as you consider the genuineness of your faith, ask yourself, are you a new creation? And does the work of your faith bear that out? Well, how can we tell? Well, ask the question, what is the cross to you? Is it folly or is it the wisdom of God? Jake read from this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the world thinks the cross is stupid, foolishness. It's shameful and embarrassing. It's a source of of embarrassment and shame, and you should hide yourself and your face from anyone who who would characterize you as someone who believes in such a mess. Does that characterize your understanding or view of the cross? Are you more often embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel? Or is it the source of your boasting? The exhortation here, of course, is to not shrink back from the cross. The ugliness of the cross on which our sin and the penalty of our unrighteousness is paid. Do not shrink back from the cross, but Paul commends us to glory in it always. What does he say in Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. It is the power of salvation for all who would believe. You can't be ashamed of the only thing which can save you, no matter how stupid people think it might be, no matter how silly the intellectuals of the world might think it is, no matter how unphilosophically rigorous it is, no matter how many people who don't have an education do believe in it, no matter if it's, by and large, in Paul's day, a religion of mostly women and poor and the outcast. The gospel is not a source of shame, but for the Christian it is a source of our boasting, Paul says, to those who are perishing, the cross, the gospel, it's the stench of death. But for those who are being saved, it is the sweet aroma of life. What does the gospel smell like to you? Is it folly or wisdom? Is it sweet or is it death? Is it shame or is it your boasting? The world and the cross will both condemn one another. But friends, listen, In Christ, we have, as Luther puts in his hymn, The Mighty Fortress, the right man on our side. The world may condemn us, but it is the world which stands ultimately condemned. We, who once were condemned under the cross of Christ, now stand free. We stand with Christ over the world. But why should we boast in such an ugly and shameful thing? Why should we boast in the cross in which Jesus, the Son of God, was heinously put to death, the gruesome and most sinful murder to ever have taken place? It is because God used it to shame the strong. And He uses it to exalt the shameful like you and I. Paul's gospel here is not one of self-improvement or self-empowerment. 
It's not to make you feel better about yourself, but to make you understand very clearly that you cannot save yourself because your heart and your flesh are corrupted by sin. You should be ashamed before God. But the gospel exalts the shameful to a place of their boasting, not in themselves, but in the cross itself. And it shames the strong who would boast in their flesh and in their strength. It makes foolish the wise. It makes wise the foolish. This is the beauty of the gospel. And it's why we should boast in something that the world thinks is despicable and worthy of their mockery. The gospel tells us not only the story of what Christ has done for us, his death on the cross and his resurrection, but what we have become because of the cross. It tells us that we are new creation, new creatures with new hearts, with new motivations, new obedience, new loyalties, not to self, but to God. We walk in that freedom. That's what the cross has done for us. And so we must boast in this. It was Christ himself who with the joy set before him endured the cross. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? He did not despise its shame. He took it on. He took on the shame. And he became the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so we must look to that Christ. He, as the author and perfecter, is also the model. Christ, who went to the cross with the joy before him, despising its shame, is our model of going to the same shameful cross, bearing it for ourselves, and identifying with him who was born on it for our sins. But the stakes of this, friends, could not be higher. I think this is Paul's ultimate point. It could not be higher. The stakes and the outcome of this rule of faith, this rule, this standard of being declared righteous, that is justification by faith alone, it is either blessing or is curse. It is the, the full mercy and love of God or it is the full weight of God's judgment and wrath. There is no more serious decision that a man could make than whether he accepts the gospel or not. The promise is in verse 16. All those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy will be upon them and upon the God, the Israel of God. By this I think he means both the Gentiles and the Jews. God will even save those who reject him in his time and in his way. But all those who walk by the rule of justification by faith alone in Christ alone receives mercy and peace with God. So the outcome and the stakes of this is blessing here in verse 16 and not cursing, not the anathema of chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. And he prays then for his readers for the very thing that is needed to secure that blessing. In verse 18, the final verse the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. What is needed to secure the blessing is not further working out of your faith by the strength of your flesh, but the grace of Christ to be with you. And this grace he offers us this morning. Christian, this grace he offers you in the spirit so that you would walk in that freedom and obey his commands. 
that you would fulfill the law of Christ. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure what it means to walk fully in this faith, the grace He offers you now is that faith and that grace to believe, to grab hold of that truth, and to say, I need this to be true. I believe it to be true. It must be true. It is true. I, I plead with you, brother or sister, grab hold of the grace offered to you this morning so that the faith which saves you is now the faith which you possess. Now you are blessed with peace and mercy and not condemnation or wrath. What Paul decides to leave with his readers is the central message of the gospel, that in Christ you have peace with God. He reiterates this later in Romans 5. Since therefore you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is what we receive and what we walk in as Christians. Paul's exhortation in mind for you is that you receive, believe, and walk in the gospel of the peace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the gospel. We ask that you teach us, Lord, what this means, how we must examine ourselves in light of it. We ask for the grace necessary to believe it savingly and for the grace necessary to walk in light of it. There is no greater or more important task before us than to trust in the sufficiency of the work of Christ, both for our salvation and for our holiness. We're thankful for the letter of the Galatians and ask God that we would continue to study and draw from its riches as we continue to seek and grow in the fruit of the Spirit, dependent upon your aid and service to one another with supreme love and affection for you and for your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.